Wondering why those peculiar tables are over there? It's because we have a life group rally today. And we need you and want you and invite you to connect to a life group. And so we're going to do a little uh, teaching this morning on church and why it's important. And life group is part of the upper plan of God. We want to say hi, first of all, to all of our uh, online uh, guests. We're so glad to have you. Elevate family, we bless you. We love you in every way. If you all would do us a favor and just hit share, that would be really important because that enables the gospel to spread throughout the world and enables others to hear a life-giving message that they need to hear. People need encouragement. Amen? Jesus has called us to reach other people, and one of the easiest things we do is we can just hit share on your Facebook page or like the, or subscribe to our YouTube page as well. Amen? All right, so God had an original plan, and when God created Adam and Eve, his plan was to create a family. And so God's plan from the beginning was to have a family. Adam and Eve were to be his sons and daughters. That through that family, the Lord would relate to mankind as a father. They would be his sons and daughters, divine representatives on the earth. Heaven would be his kingdom. Earth would be man's kingdom. The Bible says the heavens, even the highest heavens, belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to men. And so Adam and Eve were born of the earth. They were born of the spirit, and they were intimately connected to the earth itself. And so when the earth fell, it's important to know that the earth, when Adam fell, the earth fell with him. And so a lot of the stuff that we see in time and space as far as broken systems, uh, broken environments, and just all of these crazy, obscure things that happen uh, on our planet, it's because it's related to the fall of Adam. When Adam fell, the earth fell with him. And so when Jesus returns, this is the good news. This is the palingenesia of the Bible, the renewal of all things. Christ will return, redeem, fully redeem us, and he will fully redeem the earth. And the Bible says creation is groaning and waiting for that event. And so God's original plan was to have a family, a father to his sons and daughters. But without going into too much detail, because we can all understand this, sin came in and wrecked it, didn't it? Right? Sin came in, Adam and Eve decided they didn't want to serve the Lord, they wanted to serve themselves, they bought into a lie, they invited sin into the system, and when sin came into the system, it broke up the family. It separated Adam from his father, it separated Adam from his purpose, it separated Adam and his relationships. Everything became broken when sin entered. Sin corrupts and sin breaks it. Man became lost in that moment. He became lost to himself. He became lost to his environment. He became lost in his, to his relationship. He became lost in his destiny. And he became lost to his father and to his family. And so when Jesus comes to reconcile and Jesus comes to bring us back to himself, he brings us back to himself not well beyond the, the need for salvation. He doesn't bring us back just to be born again and be saved. He brings us back and repositions us as sons and daughters. And he also repositions us in, in a way that we can recapture our destiny. We can recapture our identity. We can recapture our relationships. Our relationships, this is an easy one for most of us. Relationships are dysfunctional because they're sinful. <laughs> There's sinners involved in the relationship. And so because that's there, one of the things the Bible does is it instructs us on how we relate to each other. You know, so there's an ability to reclaim relationships through our relationship with Jesus. Big story there. So sin entered and broke the, broke the image, but Jesus came to bring restoration. And so part of that restoration is the reconciliation of his lost sons and daughters. God gives us a way to return home. Through Christ, we can come back and we become adopted into the family of God. And we get to call God Father now. He becomes our father and we become sons and daughters. So it's a restorative process that takes place. And the church is part of that. One of the ideas is that God, God has a household. And a household in the Bible, one of the things it tells us in the, in the Greek is when the, when the word household is used, it's the Greek word oikos. And oikos means center of influence. And so God's household is always to be a center of influence. God's church, God, your family, whether you like it or not, is a center of influence. <laughs> Mom and dad, what goes on there is going to influence those children. A lot of times what goes on with those children is going to influence you. Anybody know? You got kids, they drive you crazy. 
You were in a great mood until that kid, until, until Johnny tried to set the trash can on fire. Now all of a sudden your, in, your behavior has been influenced in the wrong behavior. But that's what a, what a household is, is it's a center of influence. And the church is God's household. And so we have been brought back to the Lord, redeemed or given the opportunity to return to him as sons and daughters. And he has brought us into his household. His household, the oikos of God, is the church. Say this with me. Church is not a place that I go. It's not an event I attend. It's a spiritual family that I belong to. It's the restoration and the reclamation of family. And this becomes one of the households of God's, of God's families. So church, church is something that very much matters. Sometimes church doesn't matter to people. Church doesn't matter to Christians oftentimes. And that's really like, what? You know, we have to consider our ways on that because church matters to Jesus. And if it matters, say with me, if it matters to Jesus, it needs to matter to me. This is what people do all the time. They're like, well, it's not my thing. I don't feel like it. I don't like that. I just, it doesn't matter what you think, feel, or want. If it's, that's not the concern. The issue is what does Jesus want? We are to value what he values. We are to prioritize what he prioritizes. And the Lord prioritizes church. It's the Greek word ecclesia. I told first service, I spent two years. I know this sounds crazy. I have this journey of two years for some reason. Every time I study something, it takes me like two years to figure it out. It's like, well, you need to become a fast learner. Well, I spent two years of my life trying to figure out what a church is. And so like, I feel very qualified to speak on this subject because I spent two years looking at it from every different angle and trying to understand it from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, God's heart, God's intention. And then I even understood it by the way that church is actually presented in our culture. Some of it's good, some of it's bad, some of it's of God, some of it's of men. There's a lot of dysfunctional things going on. But the greatest revelation I had when I was trying to figure out what a church is, is this word ecclesia. Isn't that crazy? That word, which is typically translated for church, or it's typically translated, it means an assembly of called out ones. That, so if you look for like a theological definition of the word ecclesia, it will say an assembly of called out ones. But that's not fully what that word means. It means an assembly of called out ones living in protest or an assembly of called out ones living contrary. So what would happen in the Greek culture, this is, you, you, I'll share this in brief points from time to time, is that uh, when, when the culture of the society became corrupted or it became uh, negligent, someone within the Greek society, because it was a very sort of democratic, a lot of our freedoms come from the, the Greek ideals, the Greeks would call for an ecclesia. And they would assemble those who felt called out of this broken system. And they would assemble those to the, they would assemble those who felt that there needed to be a new society. They would assemble to themselves those who felt that there needed to be a city within a city. Make sense? Right? And so what the church God has designed it, and it was actually considered a revolution. They were in revolt or in protest. So when the culture was in hate, they were in love. When the culture was in, uh, was in uh, greed, they were in generosity. When the culture was in oppression, they were in freedom. So they would manifest contrarian values to the negative culture that they, were, that they found themselves in. This is exactly, when the New Testament was written, it was written in Greek. It was the language of the day. They could have chose any word for church that they wanted to. There's a word in Greek for assembly, and it means synagogue. But they didn't use the Greek word synagogue. They used the Greek word ecclesia. So the church is far more than an assembly. It's an assembly of called out ones living with a mission. It's an assembly of called out ones living with a purpose. It's an assembly of called out ones living in relationship to their heavenly father and with one another. It's an insanely powerful word. Insanely powerful word. Probably one of the most revolutionary words in the Bible itself, but it's completely misunderstood and neutered. The church has insane power. It's, it's empowered by heaven. Jesus' eyes is on his church. It's the only thing he's building. He's not doing anything else. He's not even building your life. He's building the church. And he will build your life through the church. But Jesus isn't on your individual mission. I can assure you of that. Jesus isn't building nations. He's building the church. Jesus isn't building businesses. He's building the church. Then that doesn't mean your individual life doesn't matter. That doesn't mean your business doesn't matter. That doesn't mean that nations don't matter. All of those things are to be brought through the church. 
right? So the way we do nations is supposed to be reflected through the church. The way we do business is supposed to be. And when I say church, the ideals of the kingdom, the value, God's purpose. He's not about your family. God will not, he's not on your agenda is basically the bottom line. What God is focused on is the church. Every single thing, and you're going to see it, he does through the church. Every single thing. We have ministries that want to start and they become para-ministries, and you'll see a few of them. They're out there. Many of you, anybody know World Vision? You know the World Vision? Anybody ever heard of World Vision? There's a lot of para-ministries that are out there. Those para-ministries or non-church ministries cannot exist without the church. They can't. World Vision would not exist without the church. World Vision would be a... So if they were to try and they were to cut off all their churches and because their churches are the dominant forces behind their support... And they were to take no support whatsoever from churches or the church members, the collectiveness. If they wanted to go and just get support from all the Lone Ranger Christians that are out there that are not interconnected to a church, they would not succeed. Everything God does, he does through the church. What he's doing with your life, he wants to impact it through the church. It's through the church. So there's no place, So it's not a place, it's a family. So the way that we do church, it's fast food, right? Come in, go, come in, go, come in, go. Here's your happy meal. Boom, see you next week. Right? It's the way we do it. It's way, way, way more dimensional than that. Way more dimensional. It's, to be, it's a large gathering. It's an interactive gathering. It's a small gathering. It's all of these things built in together. Here it is in here's this book of Acts, chapter 2. This is literally the birth of the church. This is where the church came into being in the New Testament. It says they proclaimed a message. And it says that when they proclaimed Christ as Lord, so there's this big gathering going on in Jerusalem. And so the, one of the festivals that was going on in Jerusalem and the apostles were proclaiming the message of Christ at one of these big Jerusalem festivals. 3,000 people got saved when they proclaimed this message. They'd been training their whole life to hear something like that. And when they preached it, it all of a sudden they went, wait a minute, that's what that means? Wow, I never knew that. And it says those who accepted the baptism, they accepted the message, they were baptized. 3,000 people at this festival comes to Christ at the same day. And they said they devoted themselves. Everybody say devoted. devoted. This is the key to the whole passage, right? Some of you are going to know this, you're going to know this verse. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So that's typically what the four principles of the church, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. But that's not the key. The key is devotion. They gave themselves to this. They devoted themselves to this. It wasn't something they practiced. It became their lifestyle. It became everything about them became this. The way they thought came through these things. The way they, the way they reached, the way they loved, the way they cared, everything. Christianity is not something that we do. It's not even who we are. It is who we are, but it's more than that. It is our lifestyle. It's a kingdom lifestyle. It's not about religion. It's about relationship. At Elevate, we're, supernaturally nat- we're naturally supernatural. We believe in the gifts and the power of the Holy Spirit. We believe God is active and present today, and we see him very active and present. But we don't do it in a religious way. We do it in a natural way. We just prayed for people this morning. There was nothing, there was nothing crazy about that. It was very natural and very supernatural in the way that we do it. So, God, so what happens here is that they, they were believed and they were baptized, and then they devoted themselves They gave themselves to the apostles' teaching or the word of God. They gave themselves to this. They gave themselves to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. And everyone was filled with awe. So the awe of God and the awesomeness of God came not as a relationship of the apostles' doctrine, not as a relationship of fellowship and prayer and the breaking of bread. All that's important. The awe, I can assure you, came through the devotion. Christianity is not designed to live half-heartedly. You can't do this on Sundays only. It's designed to be a functioning part of your life. It can be a dysfunctioning functioning part of your life. In other words, it doesn't always operate the way it should, but it needs to be a functioning part of your life. You can be dysfunctional with the function. Get me? In other words, you're not, well, we're all going to be perfect. We act like it's perfect. It's not perfect. It's not perfect, but this needs to be something that's active. The gospel, the kingdom, the things of God need to be something that are consistent in your life. One of the things we talked about last week is when the early church gathered, they met every single day. It says they met daily in the temple courts and in house to house. Every single day these Christians were meeting together. It wasn't a Sunday event. It was a daily thing. You wonder why this generation, the only generation in the history of the church, was able to move the gospel around the world in one generation. You wonder why? 
because they took this stuff seriously. They didn't treat it like it was entertainment. They didn't treat it. I mean, look, I'm all into entertainment. I like a good show every now and then. You know what I mean? I'm like, I like it. But they, didn't, they devoted themselves to the reality of what this really is. This is real. This isn't something in the sweet by and by. You don't need it in the sweet by and by, Christian. You don't need kingdom power in the sweet by and by. Jesus is on the throne, right? There won't even be a sun in the sweet by and by. The Bible says the Lord himself is the light. He illuminates the world. What's that look like? I don't know, but that's what the Bible says. So you don't need much in the sweet by and by because we're going to have Jesus. You need kingdom and you need power in the rotten here and now. This is where we need kingdom. This is where we need power. And they devoted themselves to these things. They took it seriously. They met together. They were, it was important to them. They built these relationships. And in one generation, they had proclaimed the gospel around the world or the known world. The world that was known to them at the time, the gospel went to every tribe and every tongue that was known to them. Why was that? Because they took it seriously. They gave themselves to it, right? They devoted themselves to fellowship and, and to, to the t teaching of the scriptures and fellowship. So fellowship is important. That's kind of like what even what life groups are about is they're about fellowship. Fellowship, you know what fellowship is? Here's where we get the word fellowship. Two ships going in the same direction. You have a fellowship, right? So we're going this way, you're going this way, we're both going, you know, or, or I'm, Corey's going this way, I'm going this way, we're going this way. If Corey starts to drift, I can go, hey, Corey, your compass is off, come back over here. You know, Corey can come back over. If Corey, we're going in this way, and all of a sudden Corey's boat breaks down, well, guess what? Corey's got a fellowship, and the fellowship can come over and help Corey get his boat back up, and then both fellowships can keep going towards the goal. That's what fellowship is. It's not stale cookies and Kool-Aid, right? You know? It's, it's, amen. It's about, you know, uh, yeah, we have better fellowship than that. Anyway, but, uh, yeah, we get some good food, amen. But, uh, but it's not about that. It's about two, it's about our lives being intermingled with each other that are moving in the same direction for mutual encouragements. Romans 111, mutual encouragement, mutual spiritual encouragement. So that's what it means. They were devoted to being with each other, not like correcting, you know, hey, man, I saw you smoking a cigarette and listening to a Jay-Z song. You know, it's not about correction. It's, let's just say this. Let's just free some people's minds here this morning. Say this. Christianity <laughs> is not about perfection. It's about direction. Has nothing to do with perfection. And all of the holiness brothers and sisters get a little crazy when I say that. And they say, well, it's about perfection. Jesus said, be holy as I am holy. I'm like, do you know why he said that? He said that to show you how impossible it really is. The issue is, well, how am I supposed to be holy? That's the question. And when people say, well, it's all about holiness, how's that working for you? So I love it. I love it. Anybody wants to talk to me about holiness, I'll be right here. You just find me. You can come over and we have a little dialogue about holiness. But be prepared. Because my first question I'm going to ask you is, how's that holiness working out for you? How's holiness going for you? There is no holiness without the Holy Spirit. You don't have the ability to be holy without the Holy Spirit. You're holy and accepted positionally. So you come to Jesus, you're holy, and you're righteous before the Lord. You can't get any more holy than that positionally. But the activity of our life is influenced. Our, can we agree? You can be positionally born again, and you can be a sinner. You, know? you can do all kinds of stupid stuff. Even though you're positionally, you're holy before the Lord because you're right in Christ. The way that we get holiness in our lifestyle, the way that holiness moves in our lives is in that relationship, intimacy with the Holy Spirit. It's not about doctrinal control. Listen, the Word of God is very, very important. The Holy Spirit speaks a language and it's called Scripture. So if you want to learn to hear the Holy Spirit, you need to learn Scripture because that's the language the Holy Spirit speaks. So scripture is important, but you cannot, you cannot manifest the kingdom through scripture alone. It's through scripture, you just can't. Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians says we are ministers of this gospel, not in word, but in spirit. For the letter kills and the spirit gives life. I've read that verse a hundred times. And I, like this week, it just pounded. Well, maybe a week ago, 10 days ago, I was reading that. I was just like, you know, everywhere I look, it's Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. It's like, what's that say, Kevin? Ministers of the gospel, not in word, but in spirit, because the letter kills. You can't do it with just the letter. You can't, right? We have word churches. We're a word church, but the letter can kill. If the, the, the sword, the spiritual sword, can be a surgical instrument, in other words, you can seriously help some people that need help. It can be used as a surgical instrument. 
It can be used to advance the gospel and to slay the enemy, or it can be used to cut people to death. Okay? Peter started wielding the sword around without discernment, just hacking people up. Cut the guy's ear off. Jesus had to put it back on. Right? And they still arrested him. That's the crazy thing. You imagine you're standing there, you're going to arrest Jesus, and they cut his ear off. The guy's like, oh, oh, my ear. The Lord's like, hey, no problem. Here you go. Puts his ear back on, and they're like, arrest him. They still arrest him. They put the brother's ear back on his head. You know, it's like, what? Crazy. But the word of God is a sword. It's a very powerful tool. It's a very powerful instrument. But it needs the spirit. The spirit must associate with the scripture in order for it to be brought forth, rightly divided, if we're going to get, go there. And so the, they, they were baptized 3,000. They devoted themselves. I love that word. That's this, such a key. The key to your life, Christian, is that you must devote yourself to things. And here's the, here's the even bigger thing. If you understand where these people are coming from, the majority of them are in Judaism. The majority of them are in a religion. The majority of them are in liturgy, so they were God-seekers. They were just a bunch of Gentiles that didn't know. They just liked the God of the Jews. Just like we just like hanging out around, you know, because they were God-seekers, the Bible says, and they were devout Jews. So you have the devout Jews and you have the God-seekers. All on this day, they proclaim the message. Boom, they come to Christ. So you got a bunch of guys that are clueless, and then you got a bunch of guys that are religious. And they embrace and devote themselves to a message that they did not understand they devote themselves to a message that they probably didn't agree with. None of this, particularly the moving of the Spirit, associated any, any relationship to them with Judaism. It certainly didn't give them any kind of context as far as the way the Pharisees taught it. So these guys are embracing and devoting themselves to something they didn't understand, and they're devoting themselves to something they probably didn't agree with. There was probably more than one theological question that came out of that group, but yet they gave themselves to it. They gave themselves to something they didn't understand because they saw the presence and the power of God. Some of you here today, you're on the fence going to school of the prophetic. I tell them, take the red pill, Neil. It's time to go to school of the prophetic. Well, I don't know if I agree with the prophetic, and I don't know if I'm... Right? Devote yourself to something you don't understand. Devote yourself to something you don't necessarily agree with, Christian. It's exactly what happened here. You see transformational power because they devoted themselves to something they didn't understand and they devoted themselves to something that they didn't necessarily agree with because they saw the evidence before them. It's the goal. Absolutely. Amen. Right on. <laughs> Everyone was filled with awe. The awe comes through the devotion. And signs and wonders started happening because these people don't play at this. We do Discover Elevate. We're doing it today. And in that, that little thing where it's a meet and greet where you can ask me questions and, and uh, I tell you a little bit about the church and then you can ask me questions. And there was one lady. She comes here from time to time. She lives, um, she lives in the islands. But when she's in town, she comes. And I remember she was in the class. I always remember this question. Oh, I had a couple questions that stood out to me. But this one really stood out to me. I said, uh, I said anybody got any questions? She raises her hand. And she goes, uh, she says to me, you know, I don't have a question. She's like, I have a comment. I was like, all right. And she's like, you people really seem to believe what you're talking about here. She's like, I've been a Christian my whole life, and you guys really believe this stuff. And now it always, I was like, well, yeah, of course we believe it, you know? So anyway, it just stood out to me. We're devoted, you know? Elevate's devoted. We run with the fully committed, you know? This church is fully committed. We're not half-hearted. We're not playing at this. We're engaged. We don't think about it. We do it. We step into what we don't know, and we give ourselves to what we don't know. Say this with me. Jesus will never violate his word, but he will violate my understanding. That's right. He's not asking you if it makes sense to you. He's not asking you if you agree with it. He's not even asking you if it fits in your framework of context of how you see him. You see that over and over again. They had a context of Jesus that was way too small. They had a context of what he was doing that was way too small. Thomas wasn't a doubter. Thomas stopped believing because Jesus didn't fulfill what Thomas thought he should fulfill. Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas was ready to die with Jesus. When Jesus was going to Jerusalem, Thomas said, let us go with him that we may die with him. Because the disciples had this concept that if we die with him, we reign with him. And so Thomas is like, yeah, let's go. Let's die with him. But because Christ didn't die in the manner that he thought 
He didn't perform in the manner that he thought Thomas gave up all hope because Jesus didn't fit in his context. Jesus didn't fit in his box. And Thomas, he tells, who's he go to? Thomas, your vision's too small, dude. You think I'm doing this, I'm doing this. You think this is what I'm doing, I'm doing this. His context was too small. Nicodemus had a small context too. He couldn't get his mind around it. Couldn't get a mind around what Jesus was talking about. Born again, he had no concept. Jesus looks at him and he goes, are you teaching my people and you don't get this? You're you, you stand in front of my people. Are you a teacher of Israel? You stand up. Let me get this straight, Nick. You stand up in front of my people and you teach and you don't know this? <laughs> he expected them to know it. But because what Jesus was talking about was outside of his framework, Nicodemus didn't get it. But Jesus isn't limited by Nicodemus' framework, nor is he limited by yours. He's not limited to my understanding. Jesus will never, he told me this. How do I know, what I'm, how do I know that Jesus will do that? Because he told me. He said, Kevin, I never violate my word, but I will violate your understanding. I'll go well off the map of what you think, but I'm still on the canvas of my word. My canvas is much bigger than what you perceive. Much bigger. You think I'm like this. Religious, denominational teachings, all this stuff. We, we frame God in a certain way. It's not true. That's why we have the Holy Spirit, to continually lead us into truth. Truth as it relates to the scripture. It's an exposition. This word is so deep. You can bell dive that scripture for the rest of your life, and you can seek revelation in the scripture and for your entire life, and you still won't get there. I just told you, I've read that before. Like, you know, we're ministers of the gospel, not in spirit, but in what, not in word, but in spirit. I've read that several times. I quote the back half of that verse all the time. Letter kills, spirit gives life. And he just shows me, I'm like, how long have I known that? It just became revelation to me. And I wasn't even looking for it. It became illuminated. So what happens is these guys became believers. They got baptized. They devoted themselves to the teaching, the instruction, the fellowship, right? Two ships. Sharing of meals. Say this with me. Share meals with each other. You guys should go to lunch. You should make friends. I don't like people. Well, you need to get over yourself. Get over yourself. People show you your dysfunctions and you show other, and other people are shown their dysfunctions through relationship. You learn impatience by people. You learn patience by being around impatient people. You learn how to overcome dysfunction by realizing, wow, why do I always say that when I'm in a group? Why do I always stick my foot in my mouth? What's my, you know, you learn that stuff through relationship. The relationship has to be one of acceptance, right? Not rejection. We're not looking to reject each other. We're looking to commune with one another. And so they, they shared meals together. No one invited me. I always tell people, invite someone. Nobody invited me to dinner. I didn't get invited to that birthday party. Oh, well, who did you invite to your birthday party? You know, who'd you invite to coffee? Who'd you invite to your meal? Who'd you invite? Who did you invite? If a man or a person desires friends, they must show themselves friendly. The Bible says, if you want a friend, be a friend. Stop waiting for everybody to come engage you. Start engaging other people. Well, what if they reject me? Okay, whatever. There's plenty of people, plenty of people. You're going to find one. I told you guys my story. I, I was at a church. I didn't know anybody. I was like the wallflower. I'd just be standing there. I'm like, I'm here, I'm here. So some very outgoing guy would come and grab me. And he says, you're not leaving here until you introduce yourself to five people. Every week, this guy would do that. Every single week. I'd see him coming, and I'd almost be like, oh, no, here comes Sean. Right? It's like, five people, Kevin. Five people. He was an extrovert. I was an introvert. You? No way. But I became an extrovert. So it is possible, introvert, to become an extrovert. How do you know? Because I am that. I was that. And I started introducing. And as he started, I started meeting people. I, I, oh, hey, man, what's up? You know, whatever. But then all of a sudden, I started connecting with people that were, that were like, that would invite me to say, hey, we're doing this thing. You want to come? You know, or well, why don't you, why don't you come to, the, you know, there, people started inviting me just because I was showing myself friendly. Yeah? So we're supposed to be friendly with each other. We're supposed to, you're not always going to agree, so get that off the books. You're not always going to agree. There's going to be agreed to, you know, it's all that's all. It's, so say it with me. Relationships are messy, but they are necessary. Right. So they should, and they prayed and awe and power came upon them. When you're born, you're born into the human family and you're born into the human culture. When you get born again, you're born into God's family and you're born into the kingdom culture. Totally different. Everything in every part of our life is to be moved through the kingdom culture. That's for another day. But we're in this world, but we're not of it. 
We're not born of human, human, we're not born of human uh, flesh. We're born of divine blood. If you're a born-again Christian, divine blood runs in you. Runs in you. Right? You cannot be called a higher title than royal son. There is no higher title. Royal daughter. There is no higher title. Jesus calls you royal, and he calls you son and daughter. There is no greater thing he could say to you. He cannot elevate you higher than that. You are royal, and you are my daughter. You are royal, and you are my son. He calls you, no, you cannot be called any higher than that. You're in his family. You're in part of God's family. You're an heir of this world and the one to come. You have authority in this world, Christian. Again, that's for another day. Not everybody is God's child. We're all God's children, pastor. No, that's not what the Bible says. As many as received him, to them were given the power and the authority to be sons and daughters of God. Only those who are in Christ are sons and daughters. You're special. Did you know that? Why would you settle for accepted when you are exceptional? Why would you settle for common when you are called to be uncommon? Why would you choose any identity beneath the royal standard that your father places upon you? Why? You should see yourself no other way. I'm a royal daughter of the highest. Well, your life doesn't look like it. Well, I know that, but I still know that I'm a royal daughter. What, your, your circumstances don't define your identity. Your past doesn't define your identity. Your present doesn't define your identity. Ready? Your choices don't define your identity. Your choices may define your circumstances <laughs> or create them, but your choices don't define your identity. The only one who has the authority to define your identity is Jesus. He's the only one. You don't have the power to define your identity. You don't. You don't. It's a small thing that I'm judged for you, but I do not rightly judge myself, for the one who judges me is Christ. So Paul said, you have no right to judge. You have no right to determine my value and worth because I don't have any right to determine my value and worth. The only one who determines my value and worth is Jesus, and he loves me on my worst day. He's for me, and he knows everything about me, good, bad, and ugly. That's the truth. That's who you are. You were born not of blood nor the will of the flesh, but of the will of God. The church is God's household, Ephesians 2. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers. Happy day. If you are an outcast Christian, that's because of your perception or that's because of something that's keeping you there because the Holy Spirit isn't, right? And this church is definitely not here. You're welcome here. You are part of this family because you're part of Christ. That's what you are. You are therefore no longer strangers. You're not an outcast. You're not. You're not an outsider. You're an insider. Does again, doesn't matter what your life looks like. Doesn't matter how shout out you are. If you're in Christ, you are no longer a stranger. You are no longer a foreigner. You are fellow citizens and saints, and you are members of the oikos, the house of influence, or the household of God. So the church is God's household, and you are called in Christ to be a part of it. We're an instrument of God's eternal purpose. That's the church. This is really powerful, too. Everything, remember when I was telling you everything that Jesus does, he does through the church? This is why he assembled it. This is this. To the intent now, this is God's intent for the church. This is the purpose of the ecclesia, is that the manifold, the word manifold means multi-dimensioned, that the multi-dimensioned wisdom of God might be made known through and by the church to the principalities, the powers, and all of the demonic realm. What is that supposed to mean? God takes a church, puts it together of redeemed people. And it is God's intent that through this church, the manifold power and wisdom of God would be made known to these devils who sought to enslave you. They would be made known to these devils that sought to, de to absolutely destroy you. So that through the church, the Lord would say, the one that you sought to redeem, or the one you sought to destroy, have now been redeemed. The one you sought to enslave have now become your master. This is God's intent for the church, is that the power and the redemptive quality, that they, and what is he addressing? He's not even addressing human authority here, because human authority is inconsequential. We already subvert that in Christ. He's saying there is no higher spiritual authority in the earth other than the church. And it is my design and desire that through the church, the manifold wisdom, the plan that I've had from the foundation of the age in all of the dimensions of the wisdom that I have intended for the church would come to pass and that these principalities and powers would know what time it is. And that my people would not be pillaged. My people would not leave barren. My people would walk in an authority and in a power and a dominion 
Hell should tremble when the church rises. They're taking a nap, filing their nails right now. There's no threat. There's no threat. Church is very little of a threat now because we're too shiny, happy people holding on. That's what we are. Spin a pinwheel. Woo! Worship services that are aerobics exercises. Come on! Over here, yeah! Exactly. Yeah, tie, yeah, tie bow. Nothing wrong with that if that's your thing. But that's not Jesus' thing. <gasps> Jesus' thing is a worshipful encounter with his presence. If you're into that, hey, that's great. You know, I watch Richard Simmons worship from time to time. I watch that. I do, you know, it's like interesting. But it doesn't draw me into the spirit. It doesn't cause me to encounter the God that I've been called to serve. And if it doesn't bring me into an encounter, it's of no value to me. It's vanity. It's empty. You have a guy up here with four, six, you know, playing four chords and singing with the anointing, and he brings people into the presence. It was a guy a long time ago. I can't remember the guy's name. Vietnam vet, probably gone by now. But I remember when I was a younger believer, this guy would sing, and it would just be him and a guitar. Who's that dude? He, uh, I'm working on my singing voice here. Some of you will know him. He'll go, let's worship. Let's lay our lives down at his feet. Anybody know that song? You don't remember that? Nobody knows that song? It's a dude with a guitar. And this dude would sing songs. And it would be like the goo and the honey of heaven is in the room. You're like, Jesus, you're all that we need. And nobody knows that guy. Can't, what is that guy's name? I don't remember that name. But he would, he would just, he would, no, was it Ken Henry? No, it was the other dude. He was the, he was the guy that wore the big hat. He'd just walk on stage, sit down with a guitar across his legs, just start playing. Let's worship. So somebody out there sent me an email. Who is that? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You can do it with production value. You can do it without. You can do it with a guitar. The anointing is what matters. The anointing. That's how God's designed it. We're commanded to function and be a part of the local body. You are commanded, Christian, to be a part of a local church. You called and commanded to be a part of a local church, to get involved. The Bible says this, the eye cannot see, say to the hand, I have no need of you. You're all uniquely designed to be a part and a member of a local community. You're unique. You're by design, right? The eye cannot say to the hand, I have need, no need of you. And I said, first service, I'm like, well, what if you want a sandwich, man? What if you see and you want yourself a sandwich? Well, good luck with that because you won't be able to eat it because you don't need the hand. It's true. We have no need, and the, the, the head cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you. So we are, we are called to be a part of a local body. Say it with me. I'm necessary. I may feel insignificant, but I'm not. If you feel insignificant, that verse goes on to say that God puts more honor on the insignificant parts within the body. So if you feel insignificant within the church, God's going to put more honor on you. There's more honor if you'll just be a part of a functioning body. God says, I honor the ones that seem diminished. That's what he does. That's who he is. That's how good he is. We're commanded to function, be a part. We're commanded to assemble. We're called to come together. Not my thing. It's Jesus's thing, Christian. And here's the command to assemble. It's Hebrews 10. And he leads out with this. Let us consider one another. So when you're thinking about coming to church, and this is the command in the scripture, we're one of them, that commands us to assemble, Jesus doesn't go, now consider yourself and what you need. Consider all the needs that you have before you assemble. He doesn't say that. Consider one another. Stir one another up, exhort one another. So what is he saying? Your being here isn't about you. Your being here is about other people. Scripture says we're mutually encouraged just by seeing each other. You ever experienced that? Anybody? You just get happy because you see somebody. You're like, oh, hey. I do it all the time. I lose my way. And Sherry's like, would you stop doing the squirrel thing? Because I'll be like, oh, hey, man. How's it going? Like in the middle of a teaching. You know, I get excited you know, just seeing people. And you do too. When you see your, you're still like, oh, hey, what's going on? You know, we're mutually encouraged. And it's about considering each other. It's exhorting and encouraging one another. Start encouraging one another. I challenged first service too. I said, look, man, let's do encouragement circles. Somebody feels down, we're going to form an encouragement circle. In the back, we're going to put you in the middle, and we're all going to exhort you. 
God's not giving up on you. Who told you that? Who told you that that was your final day? Who told you that it's over? Who told you God doesn't have a future? God's got something great for you. His mercies are new every morning. It's starting today, right? Who told you that? We're supposed to encourage and exhort one. Well, it's over. Well, it just must be God's will, Corey. Oh, ship is going down. Oh, ship is going down. Who told you that? Jesus tell you the ship's going down? No. Do it with all the time. Lord, what is your word? He will never tell you. Ship's going down, Kevin. Get the life preservers. Get the lifeboat. I don't know what I'm doing. This ship's going down. He will never say that. Life and not death. Blessing and not cursing. Above only and not beneath. That's God's will. Success and not failure. That's God's will. That's his will. We need to encourage and exhort one another. Lift each other up, even though as more as you see the day approaching. Church is not something that you do if you're bored. Church is not something you do on Christmas or Easter if you feel like it. It's a lifestyle. You're given to it. You're part of it. It's part of the lifestyle of the believers. Signs and wonders. Not my thing. It's Jesus' thing. We assemble for our good. God commands us to assemble that we too could receive encouragement. You know, if you don't need encouragement, then go give it. Give it. Bless people. Bless them. Just bless them. Live to bless. Live to give. Live to serve. Live to love. Live to encourage. You want to get over yourself? Start encouraging someone else. Your marriage is falling apart? Find somebody else whose marriage is falling apart. And say, I just believe that God is going to restore it. I know things look bad, but there's a dark cloud over this. I may feel, but God's going to change it. And I believe God's going to bring something new into your household. Start encouraging people. Speak faith. And what will happen is, is all of a sudden you start going, oh, I feel like my marriage is going to be okay now. Right. Find somebody who's got trouble with the, you got trouble with your kids. Find somebody with trouble with their kids and go. God's not done with your child. My faith says that God's not done with your child. Train them up in the way that they should go. When they're older, they won't depart. I believe God's calling that prodigal child home. And then all of a sudden you start thinking to yourself, God's going to call my prodigal child home. You encourage yourself when you encourage other people. It's how it works. It's an interesting thing. We are, we are to meet large and small. That's what life groups are about. It's our honor to be a part of our father's family, 1 Peter 1.3. We're now members of his family. It's our honor. It is an honor to us. It's an honor. I don't, this isn't a burden to me. This is an honor. I get to worship him, right? I get to experience him. When you, he gives himself to you. That's why I tell Christians, man, why would you not want to experience his presence when he's giving himself to you? He's giving himself. You know, why do you stand off from that? He doesn't have to give himself. The Lord could sit upon a throne and just bask in the glory of our worship, right? But he doesn't. He gives himself back to us, and we experience him, and he moves in us, and he begins to move. Why would you, why would you not want that? Give yourself to it. Devote yourself to what you don't understand and what you don't agree with. Word of the day. It's the restoration of the family. I'm going to give you this little story out of, out of uh, the Old Testament. And what I want to show you, first of all, the church isn't a new idea, or particularly the household of God is not a new idea. And so we're going to see that God actually had a Bethel, a house of God in the Old Testament. And what he did and what we can learn from this, and we can see a little bit more of what God wants out of his house. So in the beginning, like, so at mankind is lost. Jesus wants to bring a plan of salvation. Some of you know the stories. Some of you don't, but I'm just going to move fast quickly through it. God found a man named Abraham. The Bible says that God chose Abraham because Abraham believed God. He believed in the midst of all of the voices within the culture, in the midst of all of the voices within Abraham's own heart, in the midst of everything that was around him, Abraham chose to believe what God said. And the Bible says he believed God. And the Lord said, I can use that guy. This is a guy who is not influenced by the voices around him. He will listen to me. And so God chose Abraham. And from Abraham, he gave a son named Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau had the birthright. So this is going to see a dysfunctional family here. All of God's people were saints. They're all saints. They're none of them were saints. All of them were shot out and broken, probably in many ways worse than you. And God used them. God used them. You ever read even some of the smallest stories in the Bible? You can see how broken people's lives were, but God still used them. And if he can use them, he can use you. If he can move in their life, he can move in yours. He's no respecter of persons. 
And so Esau was the firstborn. Esau was the brawny guy, right? He was hairy, he liked to hunt, right? Running around in a loincloth, Tarzan style. You know, he was the guy bringing in all the game. And so Jacob was more like your emerald, right? He liked to cook. You know, he was a little bit more, you know, in the kitchen cooking things and stuff like that. He was really into that. So he was more like the cook guy. And then the other dude was more like the brawny. Esau was more brawny. And so one day Esau had the birthright, which meant he got a double portion of his father's household. Another long story with that. Won't get into it. So Esau had the spiritual birthright, which is what Jacob wanted. Jacob didn't want the earthly birthright. He wanted the spiritual birthright of the firstborn. And so the spiritual birthright entitled him to the spiritual lineage of the family. And so uh, Esau comes home one day and he's been hunting and he's exhausted and he's had this crazy hunting trip. And in Jacob, of course, is just pulling out some mulligan stew out of the oven. And so it's nice and warm and, you know, toasty. So he's eating it. And Esau begins to beg him for some stew. And so Jacob says, well, what are you going to give me? And he said, well, what do you want? And he said, I want your birthright. And Esau said, you can have it. It's no good to me if I'm dead. Now, the guy wasn't going to die. And so, but, so Jacob gave him the stew and legal transaction took the birthright from Jacob, spiritually, right? Or Esau. And so Esau, the Bible says that Esau despised his birthright. It meant nothing to him. So it says he despised it because if it meant something to him, he would have not so easily traded it. And this is a teaching for a lot of believers. You trade your spiritual birthrights for pots of flesh. You trade your spiritual birthrights for boxes of stew, things that appeal to your carnal nature, things that satisfy you in a moment. You're willing to trade your spiritual birthright and your identity for such things. That's what Esau did. The Bible says he despised his birthright. He didn't know who he was or what he actually had. And so he'd sell it and he sold it for a pot of meat, fleshly things. And so obviously then Jacob, ready? Jacob conspires with his mother dysfunctional family, right? So mom's got an idea. Hey, we're going to get dad to bless you instead of Esau, right? So mom dresses up her favorite son like Esau and, uh, and Isaac blesses Jacob. So he got the prophetic, he got the spiritual blessing, the prophetic blessing. And ultimately he, at, at that point, he was entitled to the lineage blessing, which would be all of his father's house. Esau finds out, Esau starts tripping. Esau's going to kill him. Even though Esau sold it, Esau starts kind of kill him. So again, mom, mom to the rescue, go and run away. And uh, I know I helped you with this, but uh, nonetheless, um, <laughs> it's crazy. And so Esau runs away. And while Esau, or excuse me, Jacob runs away, he's running away from his brother. He gets tired and he, everybody say he falls asleep. Come on, now, I got to make sure you're not falling asleep. He falls asleep and he put his head on a rock. So he lays down and he puts his head on a rock. He's sleeping, in the, he's sleeping. And while he's sleeping, he has a dream. And in this dream, there's an encounter with God. So he starts having this encounter with God. And the Lord starts speaking to him. And he tells him, this is who you are, Jacob. This is what I have for you. This is your purpose. This is your destiny. And so, so he wakes up, having reached this. And in the dream, he saw a ladder going up and down from heaven. So he was sleeping and he saw this ladder. And these angels were moving up and down the ladder. And as these angels were ascending and descending, open heaven access to the heavenly realm as these angels were ascending and descending upon Jacob he heard the father speak these things over his life he wakes up in the morning and he says the Lord was in this place but I did not know it and he named the place Bethel well what does that mean Bethel means house of God so what's the point here the point is is that God established as a household in the book of Genesis and in the, so Jesus when Jesus you see Jesus in the New Testament I'm getting I'm just stay with me Jesus in the New Testament calls someone to himself, one of the disciples, Nathaniel. And he said, you're an Israelite with no deceit in your heart. And he says, I saw you sitting under the fig tree before you were called. Nathaniel's like, you're a God and king. And he bows and worships. And Jesus says to him, because I said I saw you under a fig tree, you call me God? He says, I say, he basically, Jesus is like, stick around. You're going to see greater things than this. You will know more than this. And he said to Nathaniel, you will see angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Well, what was he saying? Every Jew would have known that story. Every Jew would have known Jacob's ladder. And so Nathaniel, being a Jew, would have understood that Jesus was saying, I am Bethel. I am the rock that, was, that Jacob rested upon. I am the open heaven. I am this. And so one of the things that we learn when God establishes his church is that Jesus is the foundation. 
He is the rock. He's the rock of the church corporately. He's the rock of the church individually. You are the church individually, and we are the church corporately. And then there's the church universal. So that's another story. And so what God is saying that Jesus is, so what do we learn from that? That Jesus is that foundation. Christ is the foundation. And not only that, so we see this too. Jesus, J, uh, Jacob names it Bethel. He wakes from his dream and he says, surely the Lord is in this place, but I did not know it. So you see it's something else here that the purpose of Bethel, the purpose of the house of God is to bring people into a spiritual awareness of the presence of God. He's sleeping at Bethel, the house of God, and all of a sudden he becomes spiritually aware of God. So the purpose, so we see not only is Jesus the foundation, we see the understanding that the purpose of the church is to bring people into a connection, into an encounter with the Lord. Every single thing we do here is designed for encounter. Well, why do you guys do the things that you do? Because we're trying to bring you into an encounter. We do a pre-worship prayer and declaration over you. What are we saying? Encounter the Lord. We do a worship set, and in the worship set, there's ministry. What are we saying? Encounter the Lord. We do a teaching, and what are we saying? Encounter the Lord. We have a prayer team after service, and what are we saying? Encounter the Lord. Every single thing we do is about you coming into an encounter with Jesus, a spiritual encounter and and an understanding, a connection with him. Does that make sense to you? So that's the purpose, another purpose. So we see this. Jesus is the foundation. We're called to bring God people into God's presence. And in the house of God, this is this one. You're gonna, it's about conversation. God will bring you into a conversation. I encourage Christians, like if you're asking God a question, come to worship and open your spirit and let him talk to you. Used to be my story all the time. I would have all these questions for the Lord. And then it used to, I'd show up at church and I'd be in the worship environment and the Lord started talking to me and I'd be like, I need something to write this down with. But I didn't have anything. So I started shoving pens and paper in my back pocket. And so when I would you know, as a new Christian, God would be talking to me about the very thing that I'd been asking him. And I was writing it down in the worship service because he was answering me in the worship service. God will speak to you. As Jacob is lying here, God is in, he's in an encounter, and the Lord begins to converse with him. He begins to tell him where he is. He begins, tells him, corrects him, and he begins to direct him. That's one of the things the church does is it corrects your life. Huh? Everybody say it with me. Hurts so good. That's right. Hurts so good. He corrects us in order to direct us. His issue is not confining you. His issue is freeing you. He shows you the issue because these are the things that are harming you. These are the things that are interfering with the relationship with him. If you understood how passionately he wants to relate to him and if you, to you, and if you understood that everything the Holy Spirit is doing in your life, when he starts pointing things out to you, he's showing it to you because it's an interference in the relationship with him. And he, will not, he doesn't want anything in between that relationship. And all the ladies here are going to understand that. Yeah? I say women get tired. If a guy's playing cards for too long, the woman gets jealous of that deck of cards. Come on, ladies, don't shout me down. All the men said amen to that. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) In first service, all the guys were like frozen. They're like this. No, no, not going to amen that. Nope. She's sitting right here, man. I'm not saying anything. She's sitting right here. If I agree with that, I got to go home with her. It's going to go crazy. But because the woman wants intimacy, right? She wants nothing that conspires or draws that attention away from her for any length of time. Now, that can be dysfunctionally used, right? But the desire, the drive, I'm not, what did I say? He's talking about the drive. He's not talking about the dysfunction, right? So the drive for intimacy that the woman has is of the Holy Spirit because that's who he is. The dysfunction, it plays out in, every, in dysfunctional ways where the guy can't even go to the mailbox without, you know, like, you know, she's got him on lockdown, whatever. That's a dysfunction, but nonetheless, the, the, the drive for intimacy is of the Holy Spirit because that's how he is. He doesn't want anything to interfere with the intimacy that he shares with you. He's either working on that or he's working on deepening. the. This is what happens in marriage, guys, right? I think we need to go to a marriage seminar, honey. What? We don't need a marriage seminar. Yes, we, have in, we need to get more intimate and we need to get closer. So we need to go to a marriage seminar. I think we really need to do that. I think we need to do that. It's never the guy's idea. It is never the dude's idea to go to a marriage seminar. 
If you are that guy, I'm going to buy, I'm going to give you a gift card at Christmas time. If you are that man, you were that guy. <laughs> yeah, Ricky, come on. But anyway, but norm normally the woman is the one who is always, I have never, if you may be my first, I have never met the guy that says, honey, I just think we really got to work on the intimacy issues between you and I. Where is that guy? Where is that man? Right? You're that man? Yeah, you're not married, so that doesn't count. I've been married 30 years. In the beginning, I have this ideal that, yes, it's going to be like that. It's going to be like that. But it's not. Usually when there's a problem, she's the one addressing it to me. Right? My idea of, an, of a marriage seminar is like they're going to tell me what my problem is. That's really what I would end up That's a long story. My point being is that it's the, it's the drive of the spirit to bring that relationship together. That intimacy is there. So sometimes that needs to be understood. That's what's going on. God brings the conversation together. He wants to correct. He wants to direct. And he wants to inspire. It's about commitment. So here we have Jacob. Two more things. We're done. It's about commitment. So we see Jacob making a commitment. He comes into this encounter. He receives correction. He receives instruction. And into this environment, Jacob makes a commitment. The Lord spoke over his life. Says Jacob woke up early in the morning. Where he anointed the stone where he placed his head. And he stood it up. So Jacob stands the stone up. In other words, he puts it in a position of value and he anoints it. The encounter, the place, the Bethel to him mattered. And so he says, and then he said, called the name of the place Bethel. And Jacob made a vow saying, if you will be with me and, and you will follow me and or carry with me on the way that I am going and you will give me, provide for me bread and clothing. Then when I come back to this place, then you shall be my God. And the stone that I've set up before you shall be this memorial. And I will give you a tenth of all that I have. There's the tithe again, for those of you who know Moses, but the tithe is there. So it's about commitment. So the church is a place where there's a, there's a reconciliation of commitment. And then it's about continuance. So Jacob, I want to finish the story. Jacob leaves Bethel, crosses the river, goes over, meets a lady, right? A woman who's really into intimacy, and she really wants to work on the intimacy issues in his relationship. So he meets a woman. He gets married. You should kind of laugh at that. You're like, what? I'm sorry. I'm entertaining myself, I guess. So... He meets a woman, and after, this, after a period of time of having a family, the Lord tells him in Genesis 35 to return to Bethel. Say it with me. The Lord told him to go back to Bethel. So he goes back to Bethel, and when he gets to Bethel, the Lord tells him, you're going to reconcile with Esau. And so the house of God is a place where there's reconciliation, particularly with the issues of our past. It's not just a place where we come and, yes, if you don't know Christ, you can give your life to him and the sins of your past are forgiven. But it's also a, pa a place where there are some things in your life that need to be reconciled that relate to your. Can I get a witness? Anybody? A lingering after effects of a life you no longer own that still follow you around. It's a place of reconciliation where God will reconcile the issues of your past. This is Bethel. And he reconciles his past. And so God is telling him, I want you to meet Jake. I want you to meet Esau, the brother that wants to kill you at Bethel. And everybody say it with me. Jacob had a problem with what the Lord told him. Yeah? He's freaking out. He's there. He's like, wait a second. I don't know if I can handle this. I don't know if this is right. And so he starts wrestling with the Lord. So again, Bethel is a place where you can wrestle with the Lord. The house of God is a place where you can ask questions. The house of God is a place where you can wrestle. And if God's telling you to do something and you got to wrestle it out, then wrestle it out. And not only is God wrestling it out with Jacob at Bethel, but he touches Jacob's hip. Jacob didn't have what it took to do the thing that God was telling him to. And the Lord gave him a touch. I'll tell you about the touch in a second. You need a touch. This is the place to get it, man. You can get a touch from God today. And God touched Jacob's hip and Jacob couldn't walk anymore. You say, I don't want that kind of touch. Why did God touch Jacob's hip? Because Jacob lived a life of self-sufficiency. And Jacob was asking the Lord for change. And the Lord said, I'm going to take away your self-sufficiency. You'll be able to rely on no one but me. No one will provide for you but me. No one. You won't even have the sufficiency to walk, Jacob. Particularly run. Because his whole life he was running. Jacob couldn't run anymore. The Lord took his self-sufficiency. The Lord also gave him his identity at Bethel. You want to know where your identity comes from? Bethel, the house of God. Why do we, pre I preach it every week. Sons and daughters, sons and daughters, sons and daughters. He said, you're no longer Jacob. You're no longer the heel catcher. You are Israel. You're a prince. So he named him. So he named him. We get our identity at Bethel. You want to know your identity? You need the reinforcement of your identity? Welcome home.
right? It's what the, that's what Bethel's for. So the church matters because it matters to Jesus. So church can be a place where you get things right. Church can be a place where you reconcile with things. Church can be a place where you get things worked out, you, you wrestle. And church can be a place where you really discover what, who and what you are. Amen? So church matters. So I say all that to tell you, life group tables are over there. You need to join a life group because Jesus does big church and he does small church. And if you're out there and you want to be a part of our life group, send us an email because we're doing uh, virtual groups. So you can join the group virtually. So let me just give you one pushback because this is some of the pushback I hear. I can't join a life group, Pastor, because I can't come every week. This is what I hear. I mean, can you come once a month? Can you come twice a month? Right. Let's just take all the excuses off the table. Let's just remove the standard of perfection where you think you've got it. Can you, can, you, can you be a part of something, a functioning part of something? Can you activate this into your life in some way? Can you be a small part of something in a bigger picture? So that's the challenge. I want to encourage you guys to do that. And then so uh, Elevate, we have a prayer team available for you and then also the life group tables. And I am going to bless you one more time. So just open up your spirit and let me speak blessing over you. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you in every way. And may he give you peace. And may you forever live within his favor in Jesus' name. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week. Amen. Join a life group. Right on. Romantic single guy right up here, ladies. Right, wants to work on intimacy and relationships. Tender. Tender.